example, the story of Samson is one of these stories that if you've been hanging around church for a while, uh, you probably saw this story flannel graphed when you were a kid. Uh, it's uh, a story that has the makings of a great vacation Bible school. Uh, it, it involves wigs and uh, plastic jawbones and just all the, the great memories of growing up in church. Uh, and if you're new to church, you're just kind of checking this whole uh, Christian thing out. Uh, the story of Samson's a story that gets lodged in our cultural framework. We talk about Samson. You probably have some vague awareness of Samson as having some kind of uh, Herculean strength of just being this strong. Kind of, we talk about him almost like he's a, a Superman with long hair, uh, and his long hair is his kryptonite. This is sort of the uh, assumptions that we begin to have about Samson. And what we wanna do together over the next few weeks as a church, uh, no matter what your assumptions or expectations are about Samson or who he is, uh, drill beneath the surface and start to ask some fresh and, and, and some new questions because these are real people in real places in real times. And I think it's always important to remember when we read stories in particular out of the Old Testament, people ask me a lot as a pastor, uh, why do we even read the Old Testament? What's the point? Shouldn't we just begin in the New Testament? And we read these stories because uh, these stories are our stories. Their conversations with God are our conversations with God. Uh, their frustrations are our frustrations. And we, we can often, these stories, even for those who've been, been around church for a long time, uh, these stories start to get fuzzy. We're not sure, was that a Disney story? Was that a, you know, a Bible story? Uh, was that Gaston or was that you know, uh, Samson? Which of the two was it? And we read these stories. One of the reasons we read these stories as well is because Jesus read these stories. In the world of Jesus 2,000 years ago, he would have told these stories and the story of Samson would have been a familiar story 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. They would have talked about real people, real places, and real times. And when you would have told the Samson story in the world of Jesus, uh, there would have been this ache to it when you would tell it. There would be this, ah, like the, he could have gone such a different, it could have been such a better story. Uh, you would have talked about Samson in such a way. He could have been on the Mount Rushmore in Jerusalem. Uh, he, he could have gone the way of Abraham Lincoln, but he took this like hard Richard Nixon kind of turn. It just didn't, uh, it just, sorry if that's too soon for a Nixon joke, but uh, it could have gone so much better, but it just took this tragic turn. And we read the story, and the reason there's an ache to the story, it's the same reason why there's aches in your story and there's aches in my story and our greatest heartbreaks and our greatest pains in life, uh, they come, isn't it true, because there's a gap between what we expected was gonna happen and what actually did happen. These are the moments of the greatest uh, like aches that we have in life. And for, in fact, for some of us over the last couple of years, the, the story of uh, a marriage falling apart or a relationship with a kid that's gone wrong, uh, the ache that's there is because there's this huge gap between what you expected was gonna happen and what actually did happen. And this is the reason why the story of Samson is so painful. And we're gonna read the story together. And hopefully the goal of this series is that we will learn the lessons from the life of Samson and make sure in our own lives we don't repeat them. Uh, that we don't have to have this gap that he had between expectations and reality. If you have a Bible, let's open it up to the book of Numbers is where we're gonna begin. Numbers chapter six is where we're going to begin. And we're gonna look through the Old Testament, we're gonna look at a, uh, a passage from Numbers, then we're gonna make our way to the book of Judges. But we're gonna start in uh, Numbers chapter six. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Fine, I'll say it myself, Numbers. <laughs> numbers chapter six. And God is, uh, there, there's a census going on and God in, in the census is basically uh, telling Moses, there's some other instructions that I want you to have. 
The Lord said to Moses, Yahweh says to Moshe, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, verse three, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. The point here is if you're under this vow, no alcohol. I know some of you are looking for a loophole, uh, (laughs) but there's not one. He's essentially saying no alcohol if you're under this vow. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. Verse four, as long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine nor any of the seeds or skins. Verse five, during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long, which is my life verse. Verse six, (laughs) throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord. The Nazarite must not go near a dead body, even, and this would include anything dead, dead animal, whatever it is. If it's dead, a Nazarite, uh, someone under this vow cannot go near it. Verse seven, even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Uh, through their hair, essentially. Verse eight, throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. And so this was called the Nazarite vow. Uh, This vow was essentially something that somebody uh, typically uh, would take for a 30-day period, and it would include essentially uh, the restrictions listed there, no alcohol, no uh, funerals, no dead bodies, and no razors. Uh, So you can't, these three things, if you were under this vow, Uh, And typically somebody would take this vow for a 30-day period and they would do it uh, for the reason in our world we might say because they desire a breakthrough. They want some kind of spiritual awakening. They want a fresh word from God. Uh, They want to experience something new uh, in their life. Now, occasionally, very rarely, you have a couple instances of this. Samson is one example. Uh, We're gonna look at him in just a moment. Samuel is another person from the Old Testament. Uh, Somebody would be under this vow for their entire life. And if somebody was under this vow for their entire life, there was this uh, heightened sense of expectation that they, uh, this vow was a way to be set apart. It was a way to say, God, I wanna experience you. I want uh, uh, something new through me or uh, through you coming through me in a fresh way. I want to experience this. So there's, there would be this high expectation on someone who'd taken uh, this vow for life. But typically it was just a 30 day vow that somebody would take because they wanted to experience the Lord in a different, new, kind of fresh way. In our world, we might say uh, somebody gives something up for Lent uh, because they wanna experience God or have some kind of fresh spiritual uh, moment. Somebody might go to youth camp. Somebody might go on a retreat. We might use the phrase breakthrough. I want a breakthrough in my life. I would argue this vow uh, or anything like that in our life, denial always has to be about desire. Uh, Whenever we deny ourselves something, it it has to be because we desire something bigger. We want something better in our lives. If it's just about denial, then uh, that's depressing. But if it's about desiring something more, uh, it can be this amazing way that God works uh, in somebody's life. And so this vow was a part of that. Uh, I meet people all the time that say things like, well, I'm not gonna drink alcohol for a while because I want clarity. I want this, uh, you know, this has been a tripwire for me and I wanna hear a fresh word. I need God's voice to be clear and I need to be fully sober. 
Uh, I meet people that say things like, well, uh, I'm not going to date for a while because I, that's been a tripwire. I need, I need God's voice to be clear. I need uh, this to be a fresh word. Denial, uh, it's about desire. It's about I want something new uh, in my life. It can be a very cool thing that God uh, does or leads people uh, to do. Now, let's turn to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Judges, chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 5. Now, Samson is called a judge. He's one of 12 judges in the scope and in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, the book of Judges, obviously, uh, is about the judges. It details the history and the timeline of the judges. And Samson's one of these judges. And a judge in this world is not uh, an elected or an appointed official. It's not someone who has a gavel and a robe. A judge in this world is essentially someone who's going to deliver, that God's going to use for some incredible purposes uh, to deliver people, usually from an oppressor. This is who Samson is. He's a judge. It says this in Judges chapter 13, verse 5. This is the kickoff of the Samson story. You, this is to Samson's mom, will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So if you've been hanging around church for a while, the Philistines, these are the, the Goliath people. Uh, they're kind of this constant enemy of the nation of Israel. So there's two sort of expectations on the life of Samson. One, he's going to be set apart through this Nazarite vow. He's going to... Uh, have this sort of way, not just that he's going to deliver the nation of Israel, but he has a way that he's going to do it. He's going to be the sacred, set-apart kind of a person. Uh, also, there's sort of this uh, expectation that he is going to deliver the nation, that he's going to uh, do something incredible. God's going to use him for incredible purposes uh, in the world. Now, it says this in the end of Judges chapter 13, I guess uh, some, somewhere where Samson's a boy or some point in his life, it says, uh, verse 24, Judges chapter 13. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. Verse 25, and notice this phrase, it's gonna repeat several times. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Mahane, Dan, between Zorah and Estiol. They sound like medicines. Uh, but he is uh, the Spirit of the Lord stirring in him. God's using him. There's something new. Now, the Samson story uh, begins to go south when he falls in love with the wrong woman. Uh, my, how we've evolved as men. Uh, <laughs> this is where, essentially, he's going to fall in love with this Philistine woman, and the story really begins in Judges chapter 14. So there's this high expectation on who he's gonna be and what he's going to do. And notice this story from Judges chapter 14, starting in verse five. Now, he's told his parents, I wanna marry this Philistine woman. Uh, his parents came back and said, well, no, you're not supposed to do that because according to the Torah, uh, Deuteronomy chapter seven, you were not supposed to intermarry. You were not supposed to uh, essentially step outside of your tribe, uh, the Jewish people, to marry. But he says, this is what I wanna do. And so it says this, Judges chapter 14, verse five. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother as they approach the vineyards of Timnah. Now, it says he's approaching the vineyards of Timnah. Now, on the surface, it, it, it sounds like a story the writer's gonna tell you about how brave Samson is. 
But it says he's approaching the vineyards of Timnah. It's just said that he's just bent on marrying this woman that he's not supposed to marry. Uh, If you've taken this vow to abstain from wine, grapes, all these things, where's the one place you should not be? The vineyards. But where, so the writer's telling you, uh, this isn't about how brave Samson's gonna be. This is a man who's beginning to head down the wrong path. Notice what it says. Suddenly, a young lion came roaring towards him. Verse six, here's the phrase. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Verse seven. So he went down and talked to the woman and she looked good to Samson. Verse 8, when he returned later, the Bible has all these fascinating stories. This is one of verse 8. When he returned later to take her, wow, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. Verse 9. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate it too. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of a lion. Now, this seems like a strange story. And on the surface, it seems like the writer's trying to tell you, uh, Samson's this brave, heroic William Wallace. He can uh, kill the lion with his hands, and then he can take the girl. I mean, he just has this amazing uh, ability. But if you, if you look beneath the surface, the writer uh, is trying to tell you something else about Samson. Uh, first off, he is doing something he shouldn't do, which is going to marry this Philistine woman. Uh, He's in the vineyards, which he should not do, according to his vow. And then it says he's going to kill this lion, which, uh, according to this vow, he's not supposed to be in the presence of anything dead. So he keeps, he's essentially, uh, the writer, he just keeps heading down the wrong path. Then he's going to stick his hand into the carcass of the animal and take honey from it. Now, according to the law, uh, any good God-fearing Jew, you are not supposed to do this. This would make you unclean, essentially, to do this. He's headed down the wrong path. Then he's gonna give some to his parents and he's gonna essentially make them unclean, which you should not do. And then he's gonna lie to them, essentially, and tell them, uh, or not tell them where it came from. So he, the, the writer isn't trying to tell you uh, how brave Samson is. The writer is essentially trying to say, he's headed down the wrong path. Uh, this isn't about his bravery. This is about his immaturity. Now, at this moment, any uh, commentator or historian would tell you, this is a pivotal moment in the national timeline in the history of the nation of Israel. All throughout the book of Judges, there keeps uh, an oppressor will rise up, uh, a group of people, a nation around them. Uh, in the book of Judges already, you've had the Moabites rise up against Israel. And then you've had the Midianites rise up against Israel. And they'll have these oppressors, they'll have these occupiers. And generally what will happen is a judge will rise up and say, we're not gonna take this because usually the oppressor has been so horrible. They, and we can't even repeat the details of some of the stories. Uh, because it's just so graphic what they would do. But essentially, these oppressors would be so violent and so brutal uh, that the Israelites would rise up and they would fight back and say, God, deliver us from the hands of the Moabites or the Midianites. Now, at this particular moment, uh, it's the Philistines, the Goliath people, who are the occupiers. And the problem at this moment is the Philistines aren't that bad. And the Israelites, uh, they actually begin to, to, to like it. They begin to, to marry other Philistines. They start to uh, essentially assimilate into the culture of the Philistines. And the problem is, uh, and 
the reason this is such a fascinating moment in the history of the timeline of Israel and really world history is because if this keeps going, there are a couple generations from their culture, the Israelite culture, completely being absorbed into the Philistine culture. And even if you're not a Christian, just from a world history standpoint, this is such a fascinating moment because imagine, if this story keeps going in this direction, if somebody doesn't rise up and do something about it, Israel as we know it, the the Jewish faith as we know it, the Christian faith as we know it, would, would look completely different if this story goes in a different direction. Their culture could be absorbed completely. Even if you're not a Christian, this is a fascinating moment in, in the history of the world. And what makes Samson such a unique character, a unique guy, is that he doesn't see any of the spiritual issues or implications of what's going on. He's going to get into a fight with the Philistines, but not in the same way that David is going to fight the Philistines, where David rises up and says, uh, I'm doing it because so that the world may know that there's a God in Israel, that uh, David recognizes the deep spiritual implications. Samson's gonna get into a fight with the Philistines. Uh, he's gonna essentially back into it. He's not getting into it for spiritual reasons. He gets into it uh, because he's on his way to marry this Philistine woman. And it's a fascinating story. You read it in Judges chapter 14. He essentially makes a bet with the bride's family at the wedding. And all these Philistine uh, men essentially trick Samson into, uh, through this whole riddle and this prank, essentially. And Samson loses the bet, loses the wager. And he gets so mad that he, he flies into a fit of rage. And notice what it says that he does after he's lost this bet. And it all centered around this riddle. Verse 19 of Judges chapter 14. And here's this phrase again. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. But notice what he does. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, the Philistines, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. Uh, now, this is interesting. He keeps saying the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. The Spirit of the Lord rushes to him. Uh, and then he will go, and what does he do? He essentially breaks the vow He's not supposed to be around a dead, he's certainly not supposed to kill anybody. And so there's this vow that, it, this is strange. Why does it keep saying this? This is sort of a tension here. Uh, that's like me saying, I was gonna be faithful to my wife, but then the spirit of the Lord came upon me and I decided to do what I wanted to do. Uh, this is an odd story. Now keep going. And it says this, Judges chapter 15, turn over a page in the story. It says, this is from a famous scene in his life. Verse 14, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. And then, notice again, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Verse 15, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and he struck down a thousand men again. Uh, he essentially is going to violate the vow, the Nazarite vow from Numbers, which he is supposed to be living underneath. This is not the last time, and Brad Gray in his brilliant book on this uh, called Make Your Mark makes this observation, and I think it's, it's so fascinating because this is not the last time that Samson is gonna do something dumb in the book of, of, of Judges. This isn't the last time that you're gonna see Samson break his vow. In fact, seven more times, you're gonna see Samson do something uh, that's cringeworthy, where you go, why in the world uh, would he act that way? Or why would he do that? But this is the last time 
where you are going to read the phrase in the story of Samson, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. It's not the last time, in fact, there's gonna be seven more times where you're gonna notice that Samson does something where he breaks the vow, where he essentially goes against this promise or commitment that he's made, but it is the very last time where you're going to read the phrase, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. In fact, notice what it says in the story where he gets tricked by Delilah, another temptress. Uh, You notice a theme in the story of Samson. Judges 16, verse 20, it says, Delilah, then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. This is towards the end of his life. The Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out before and shake myself free. What does it say? But he did not know that the Lord had left him. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And commentators have pointed out, and I tend to agree with this, that the spirit of the Lord is coming to Samson essentially time and time again going, do not go this way. Do not violate your vow. Do not act this way. This is not how God intends to use. This is not what you were supposed to do. And time and time again, Samson ignores the voice of God and just does whatever he wants to do. This is not a story about Samson's incredible strength. This is a story about Samson's incredible weakness. This is not a story about a man who can achieve unbelievable physical feats uh, through how strong he is. Uh, At another level, this is a story about how weak he is and a man who's going to lose everything because he is disobedient to God. And yes, God uses broken people. And yes, God even uses broken purposes. But Samson, again and again, just like you and just like me, ignores God and decides to do what he wants to do. Now, you know what this means for you and for me? See, when you became a Christian, or if you decide to become a Christian, and this is what makes Christianity so unique in the scope of world religions, and this is what makes Christianity so beautiful uh, in, in the New Testament, because when you become a Christian, or if you decide to become a Christian, essentially you become uh, the, the house of God. You become essentially uh, the resting place of God. You become the residence of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what makes Christianity so unique because every major world religion will say that God or the gods rest somewhere, that there's a divine place or there's divine real estate somewhere in the world. And Christianity says that God has not chosen to take up residence in a building in Jerusalem, but God has chosen to take up residence through his Holy Spirit in people. That you and me are divine real estate. You and I, you essentially are the, are the place where heaven is going to meet earth. And if you so choose, and if I so choose, we begin to live a life when we begin to say, God, you, you take, I want you to live inside of me. And that's kind of funny language, but essentially what we mean is, God, your Holy Spirit, I want him to live inside of me, dwell inside of me. And if we so choose, we can begin to live in such a way that we're underneath the authority and the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. The scriptures talk about this over and over again in the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit of God wants to guide and direct your steps. And I don't mean in such a way that uh, you hear the audible voice of God or you always know exactly what you're supposed to do. But if you're sensitive to it as a Christian, you can begin to live under the authority and the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. 
And I'm not saying that God will stop speaking to you if you ignore it, but I've experienced this, and I imagine many of us have experienced this. If we ignore God's voice in our life, if we ignore God's prompting in our life, it becomes more and increasingly difficult, doesn't it, to hear the voice of God. And if like Samson, we decide just to go our own way and do our own thing and ignore what we, be, what we know God is telling us or directing us to do, isn't it true it becomes more and more and increasingly difficult in a distracting and complicated world to hear and discern the voice of God? Paul talks about this again and again in the New Testament. It's all throughout, it's all throughout uh, the New Testament. That in Christ Jesus, you and I are called to a new standard. That we don't take a Nazarite vow, but we live under a different kind of standard in the same way that Samson was called to something bigger and better. As a disciple of Jesus, you're called to a new reality. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter four, that, that live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter, that you've been set apart, a holy nation. You are declared a holy priesthood, that God has rescued you out of darkness. He's moved you into marvelous light, essentially. And that because of that, you're not underneath the Nazarite vow, but there is a high expectation when you become a Christian on who you are supposed to be in this world. And the Holy Spirit of God guides and leads us to live underneath and, and, and up to that expectation of what he's called us to be. This is why when you sin or when you fall or when you fail or you ignore God like Samson, the, the problem with sin isn't that it makes you do a bad thing, that's a part of it, but it's that it keeps you from doing the good thing. It keeps you from living up to the standard that God's called you and God's called me to live up to. And the word sin, it's kind of a funny word. We don't use that word in our everyday language. And in the, the word sin, it's actually an archery term in the Bible. And it means just to miss the mark, that when someone pulls the bow back and they fire and they don't hit their target, that they, they miss the mark. This is what sin means. That when you and I, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, called to live like Samson under a different kind of vow, under a different kind of authority, the Holy Spirit of God's authority in our life, and we don't live up to it, that we miss the mark, essentially, of what we're called to be and who we're called to be. And it's not just we do a bad thing. It's that it keeps us from being the people that God wants us to be. And the Holy Spirit of God comes in our life to close the gap between who we're expected to be and who we actually are. That, that there wouldn't be this huge difference between our calling and our life, but we would begin to more and more every day in our life look more and more like Christ and who Christ has called us to be and died and resurrected for us to be. You know what this means for you and for me, brass tacks, if you boil it down? For some of us, you hear this voice or you hear this nagging feeling in your heart every time you do something that you know you shouldn't do. And for some of us, it gets annoying because you have this pattern, you have this way of life. Maybe nobody even knows about it. Maybe it's just a condition of your heart. Maybe it's how you talk to somebody. Maybe it's how you've treated people. Maybe it's how you spend money, whatever it is. Uh, it might be a living arrangement or some kind of habit in your life that just keeps coming up over and over. And it bothers you and there's this voice in you that says, you shouldn't do this. Why would you act this way, Jared? Why would you go this way? And that voice annoys you. It bothers you. But, but it's actually really good news that you hear that voice. Because if you still hear the voice of God, it means you're not as far away from God as you thought you were. 
If you still hear that voice saying, why would you go this direction? Because there may come a day where your heart gets so hard to it, you don't even, you're not even attuned to it anymore. If you just keep ignoring and ignoring and ignoring, and if you still hear that voice, remember when you were a kid and you'd play in your backyard and you'd just get as lost as you could, you didn't know, how far from home am I? And then you hear your mom call out, it's time for dinner, you would think, I'm not as far from home as I thought. The same thing is true of the Holy Spirit of God. He calls us home to begin to live the way that he has called us to live. But if you keep ignoring it, you know what your other option is? And I've done this, and many of us, you've done this as well. If we decide not to live under the voice and the leadership of God, then what will begin to happen is that our behavior will begin to drive our beliefs. Here's what I mean by that. See, you've been made in such a way by God, this is true for all of us, that your beliefs would guide and dictate your behavior. That your beliefs about anything, money, marriage, how you treat people, how you talk to people, your beliefs about those things would guide and begin to dictate your behavior and how you live in the world. That's how you've been made to live, that your beliefs would guide and dictate your behavior. But when you ignore God over an extended period of time, you know what begins to happen? More and more, that equation will get flipped. And your behavior will start to drive and dictate your beliefs. And it's a good litmus test just to ask yourself from time to time, am I engaged? I have to ask myself this question all the time, and sometimes I'm afraid of the answer. Am I engaged in a behavior currently that two months ago, two years ago, 10 years ago, I would have said unequivocally is wrong? Are you engaged in a behavior currently? It might be a living arrangement, it might be an addiction, it might be a pattern of life that you now think is okay, but two years ago, 10 years ago, you would have said unequivocally based on God's word, I know this way of life is wrong. See, what's begun to happen is that your behavior has started to guide and dictate your beliefs. And if your behavior has been the thing, it's been the voice that's driving and leading your life, if your behavior is dictating your beliefs, then you are a really good candidate for a new beginning. You're a really good candidate to not repeat the mistakes of Samson, but learn from them and say, God, I, you're a really good candidate to walk into the Connection Center today and say, there's a problem. I've been ignoring God's voice for so long that I'm just blowing in the wind with my own preferences of what I wanna do. You're a really good candidate to call a friend this week. You're a really good candidate to walk into life groups today and say, hey, there's a problem. I need to surrender my life to the voice and the leadership of God. I've been ignoring God's voice. Or I, for the first time in my life, want to invite God, instead of just my own behavior and my own preferences, to guide my life, but for God to take up residence and to guide my life. The story of Samson ends tragically, but the Bible doesn't end tragically. This is how the story of Samson ends. Ends. Judges chapter 16, verse 28. And he's been captured by the Philistines. He's arrested and housed in a temple to a false god named Dagon. It says this, verse 28. Then he called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time. You ever prayed that prayer? <laughs> I have. Oh God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. They've taken his eyes. Verse 29, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against him, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushes the pillars and the house falls and Samson dies with his enemies. That's where the story of Samson ends, but the good news is that's not where the Bible ends. 
Because in the New Testament, Jesus is going to come. And he's going to be a different kind of a judge than Samson. And Jesus is going to be tempted three times in the wilderness to disobey God and dishonor God. But he's not going to cave to the temptation. He's going to honor God. And Jesus is going to have the the opportunity to kill his enemies. But Jesus is going to come and he's going to do the unthinkable. Jesus isn't going to kill his enemies. He's going to be killed by his enemies for the purpose of you and me. Those of us that have lived like Samson in this world which you're surrounded by people today that have ignored God and lived like Samson time and time again. (laughs) That your story doesn't have to end the way that his did because there's a new judge that comes in the New Testament, Jesus. And he says, you are not under the law of condemnation for your behavior. You are under the law of grace. And if you so choose, you can be obedient to the voice of God and say, God, I don't wanna ignore you. I wanna surrender to what you're telling me to do. And people that would read the stories of Jesus, they would have known the story of Samson. And they would have said, this is good news, that Jesus has come and placed us, a different kind of judge, under a different kind of a law. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the stories. I thank you for the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. That they guide, they direct us, they point us towards your son. We thank you that Jesus came and said, it's not eye for an eye. That's not how God works. But there's a new way that God's gonna work in the world. God, I pray for somebody that's here that's been ignoring you. The prompting, the leading, and at times it feels like a pounding in their chest, but they just keep ignoring and ignoring, hoping it'll go away. And God, I pray it doesn't go away. I just pray they decide to be obedient to it. God, I thank you that we, as your people, are under the law of grace, called to a different standard, to live a different kind of life in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.